1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15, describing our God, describes Him as He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's pray. Father, when we offer our praise to you, it does very often seem like we're merely lisping our praise. We're, we're trying, Lord, to bring our hearts and our minds and our voices all in tune to adore you and to praise you. But Lord, we know we fall so very short of your true glory and your true power. Lord, the only way we would we would know what we do know is from your word. And so I pray that you would teach us again this evening from your word. Lord, I pray that you would impress upon all of us a sense of awe and reverence and and fear of who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, there probably hasn't been a more important topic in the mouths of Christians around the world in the past 20 months than that of the civil magistrate and the church's relationship to the governing authorities. Now this morning I mentioned the social justice movement. We might think in our eyes, well that, that seems to be at least perhaps a competing, or a competing thought, but, but that's really mostly just a, a Western problem, the social justice movement, because we in the West are those who are more celebrity obsessed. We're the ones who are listening to Twitter and Facebook and YouTube constantly to tell us who is the popular teacher, who should I listen to this week. And very often they give us bad, uh, bad teachers. But this idea of civil disobedience or civil obedience and the relationship of the church to the civil magistrate, that's actually worldwide. And I tried to think, and, and I have spoken to personally or at least heard from secondhand uh, men on at least four continents who are wrestling with this issue of the relationship between the church and the civil magistrate. It's been on everybody's mind, especially in America, because most of us had not really considered all of the details of this doctrine until about March 2020. We here kind of thought we were ready. We thought we had all that we needed. And then all of a sudden it was at our doorstep and we realized we, we thought we had more time to prepare and think through this issue. Many churches stopped meeting because the civil magistrate told them that they had to stop. That was sin. Many churches stopped meeting because they acted, in their own words, based on the information that they had. The information given to them by the Center for Disease Control and the World Health Organization. That was sin. Not only that they stopped meeting, but that they stopped meeting based on information given to them from organizations that don't know the difference between a man and a woman... Don't, don't mind murdering children, but yet they can tell the church when they ought to meet and not to meet. It was wrong. It was sinful. 
Now that seems a little extreme. Uh, to hear that in our ears, well, that was sin. Well, that, that sounds a little abrasive only if your position is, well, I can't be charged with sin, or Christians can't be charged with sin. And as a matter of fact, we can. We do sin. It was sinful. And I think our confession would vindicate that position. Notice the first paragraph of this 24th chapter of our confession of faith. God, the supreme Lord and King of all the earth, hath ordained civil magistrates to be under Him, over the people, for His own glory and the public good. And to this end hath armed the powers, or armed them with the power of the sword for defense and encouragement of them that do good, and for the punishment of evil doers. Now, in this paragraph, there are nine truths, all of which are foundational to the biblical teaching on the civil magistrate. Nine truths. And if you read it carefully, I think I can, you'll, you'll see all of these nine truths. Number one, God is the supreme Lord and King of all the world. Number two, God has ordained civil magistrates to be under Him. Three, God has ordained civil magistrates to be over the people. Four, God has ordained civil magistrates to be over the people for His own glory. Five, God has ordained civil magistrates to be over the people for the public good. Six, to the end of His own glory and the public good, God has armed the civil magistrate with the sword. Seven, God has armed the civil magistrates with the power of the sword for the defense of those that do good. Eight, God has armed the civil magistrates with the sword for the encouragement of them that do good. And number nine, God has armed the civil magistrates with the sword for the punishment of evildoers. All I want to do this evening is open up the first one. God is the supreme Lord and King of all the world. God is the supreme Lord and King of all the world. There is in that statement a subject, and then there is an assertion of the status, offices, and realm of that subject. Notice the subject is God. God is the supreme Lord and King of all the world. As in any theological or biblical study, any doctrine, we begin with God. There's only one living and true God. It's the God of the Bible. He's revealed Himself in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's who we're talking about, that God. He's our subject. And then there's this assertion that this God, the God of the Bible, is the supreme Lord and King of all the world. Notice the status that's ascribed to God. He is the supreme. The word supreme means He's the highest. He's the greatest. means the utmost. Supreme from the word super or upair. It means above, up. So that, negatively speaking, to be supreme means there is none higher, there's none greater than God. Then we could ask, well, in what offices is God said to be the highest, the greatest, the utmost, the supreme? Notice He is the supreme Lord. 
The word Lord means master or ruler. The word Lord means the one in charge. Then he is the supreme king. A king is a master, a ruler, a lord, except he's the ruler specifically over a nation or a tribe or a country. We might say a realm. A king is lord over a realm. And so the one living and true God of the Bible is the highest, the greatest, the utmost master and ruler over a particular realm. What is the realm over which God is lord and king? God is the supreme Lord and King of all the world. And the word world here would be the the whole system of creation existing in confinement to what we call planet earth. Now somebody might say, is there not more over which God is Lord? To which we respond, yes. But remember that here we're talking about the civil magistrate. We're talking about God and our relationship to the civil magistrate, God's relationship to the civil magistrate, and that's a topic that's confined to the earth and to the people who are on it. So we're going to keep our thoughts confined to what we call planet earth. And so the one living and true God of the Bible is the highest, the greatest, the utmost master and ruler over the entire system of creation existing in confinement to what we call planet earth. If we are to understand anything about the civil magistrate, about God's relationship to the magistrates, of their relationship to God, of our relationship to them, then we have to start right there. God is at the top. That's where we start. Now, if you've got a copy of the Confession with the Scripture references, you'll see that Romans 13, 1-4 is referenced in this paragraph. And we'll get there. But not even Romans 13 starts with Romans 13. How do I know that? Because it's Romans 13. Romans 13 actually begins at Romans 1, which teaches us that what can be known about God is plain to all men because He's shown it to them. God's invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Although men know this God... They do not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. And mankind has exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. After that, later on we get to Romans 13. In other words, Romans 13 comes to us only after we have assumed an immortal, divine, eternal power so clearly manifested in His glory in the sight of all men that anyone who does not honor Him as God deserves His judgment. Romans 13 assumes that. Romans 13 and any other discussion of the role of the civil magistrate from a Christian and biblical perspective presupposes that the one living and true God of the Bible is the highest, the greatest, the utmost master and ruler over the entire system of creation existing in confinement to to what we call planet earth. Romans 13 assumes that. Now let's go to the scriptures. Now what I want you to do is follow with me through the Scriptures. You can go back to Genesis. And I basically want to just justify what I've stated or prove what the Confession states. The Confession is not Scripture. It merely summarizes the teaching of Scripture. And I'm going to show you that beginning in the book of Genesis and we'll walk through it. But remember the points that we are establishing here. Our subject is God. His status, He is supreme. His offices, He's ruler and king. 
And the realm over which He rules is the entire created world. So Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If there would be any supreme Lord and King, surely it could be no other than the very God who spoke His realm into existence and who, even until now, upholds it by the word of His power. He created it. Who has rights of sovereign authority? The Creator, the one who made it. There is none higher in power than the one from whom all of creation flows. Isaiah concurs with this, and you don't have to turn here. Isaiah 40, 28. The Lord is the everlasting God, the Creator of the ends of the earth. And God even says of Himself in Isaiah 45, 12, I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens. I commanded all their hosts. Now there obviously we're moving beyond the uh, the habitable world. But the point is, God says, I commanded it all. I made it all. I spoke it. It's, it's mine. I rule over it. We see that in Genesis 1.1. Now turn to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 to 7. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that He had made man on the earth, and it grieved Him to His heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now you tell me, who, except the supreme Lord and King of all the earth, of all the world, who, could, who besides Him could look down on every living, breathing creature and say in perfect, unquestioned serenity, I'm going to kill them all. Nobody argues with Him. Nobody slows Him down. How can He say that? Because He created it. He lords over it. He's king. He can create and He can kill at His will. No one can question Him. There's no debate. There's no discussion. Nothing has to pass through Congress or Senate. Nothing can get floored or tabled. He says, I'm killing them all. And it happened. He did it. Turn to Genesis 11. We come to the plain of Shinar. Mankind is not yet dispersed which means the human race is, for the most part, centralized. Their power is centralized. Their efforts are centralized. Their labor is all unified. They've come together in a singular effort. Verse 5, it says, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the whole earth and they left off building the city. We see all mankind dispersed over the whole earth. Like He just spreads them out. Now who except the supreme Lord and King of all of the world 
could take the entire human race and disperse them over the whole earth. And, and how can He do that? Why can He do that? Because humanity is His. He owns it. He created them. The earth is His. Every square inch of it is His. He smears people out wherever He wants them because He owns them. He owns it all. Genesis 12. Verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. Hold on a second. Whose land is it? It's God's land. Why? Because He's the supreme Lord and King of all the earth. He gives it to whom He pleases. He doesn't have to say, Abram, I'd like to give you this piece of land. Um, you start praying. I'm going to go talk to the Canaanites to see what they say and see if they'll, they'll give you a little section of it. He says, I'm actually going to raise you into a, a, a large family, a mighty nation, and I'm going to send you in to wipe out that nation and clear it of its inhabitants, and then I'm going to give it to you. Because it's His. He owns it. His dirt, His ground, His trees. It's His. Chapter 22. We'll move faster after we get out of Genesis. In chapter 22, he says to Abraham, 22, verse 18, In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Whose nations are they? They're God's nations. He owns them. He made them. He's the supreme Lord. Who but God would have the right to say, ah, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and bless them all. They're His. He can do what He wants with them. It's the one who created them, the one who owns them, the one who dispersed them, the one who rules over them all can say, I'm going to go ahead and bless them all through your seed, Abraham. Now, turn to the book of Joshua. Chapter 5. Joshua chapter 5. Human lords and human kings are always limited in their realm of authority. In the New Testament we, we, we read, Sarah called Abraham Lord. That means of his household. Uh, David was king over Israel. That's the way human kings operate. But when it comes to God, what do we see? Joshua 5.13, Then when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing there before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now we know this is a, 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 the pre-incarnate Christ, the, the servant of the Lord or the, the angel of the Lord, appearing to Joshua. And when he's asked... Whose side are you on? His response is no. In other words, I don't take sides, Joshua. I don't have a team, Joshua. I am holy, holy, holy. I own all the teams. I own all the armies, all the lands, all the realms are mine. Joshua says, I get it. What, what do you want me to do? Take your shoes off and worship me. You're on holy ground. 
He owns it all. He's the supreme Lord. He's not limited in His realm like human lords and human kings are. Turn to the book of Ezra. This is when everybody gets nervous about their Bible skills. If you get to Psalms, you went too far. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. What's the point? Persia at this time is probably the mightiest nation on earth. The supreme Lord and King of all the earth just stirs his heart a little bit and says, I'm going to use you to fulfill the word that I spoke by my prophet. And he does it. He puts it in writing that to release the Israelites. Turn to the book of Daniel. And we're going to backtrack a tad. Daniel chapter 2. After we go through Daniel. Daniel chapter 2 verses 20 and 21. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Now this is a little bit closer to the concept of a civil magistrate and and, uh, authorities in the world. But human kings are set up and removed according to the Lord God's prerogative alone. Only He does this. Daniel 2.47 The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings. God of gods means every nation has their gods. But Daniel, your God, He's over them all. Lord of kings. Every nation has their kings. Daniel, your God, He's master, He's ruler over all of the earthly kings. To this we know Nebuchadnezzar testifies in chapter 4. Daniel 4, 34 and 35. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed, notice what he calls him, the Most High. Supreme. I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever for His dominion, His realm, is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? In other words, God does what He wants. Why? Because He's supreme. There's no one above Him to question Him. He's second to none. He answers to none. Because he's at the top. Now turn to the book of Psalms. Psalm 2. Psalm 2. When all of the the lords and kings of the earth mount their attack against the Most High. Psalm 2.4 He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. 
because He rules them all. Psalm 9, verses 7 and 8. The Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established His throne for justice. And He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. Who judges the world except the judge of all the earth? Who can be judge of all the earth except He who is the supreme Lord and King of all the earth? It's our God. Turn to Psalm 50. Psalm 50, verses 10 to 12. God says, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Now this verse is often quoted to say, my God owns everything and He can give me whatever He wants. That's not the point here. The point here is God is saying, I don't need your worship. I own everything. You can't give me anything that I don't already own. He owns every beast, all of the cattle, all of the forests, all of the hills, all of the fields. It belongs to Him. The world belongs to Him. He's the highest. He's the greatest. He is above everything. He says, if I were hungry, if I were the type of being that experienced hunger, I wouldn't come to you. I own everything. It's all mine. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Psalm 115, 3. Psalm 135, 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. There is none to thwart God. There is none to control God, none to frustrate God, none to obstruct Him in any of His works. Why? Psalm 136.2, He is the God of gods. He rules over everything. He is supreme. Turn to Psalm 146. Psalm 146, verses 3 to 7. Again, getting closer to the idea of human magistrates. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. Don't put your trust in princes, human magistrates. Don't trust in them. Why not? Because there's no salvation in them. They can't save. They're not supreme. They're not eternal. Who is eternal? The God of Jacob, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. Turn to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, 
And His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over His kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah promises or prophesies the birth of a child who's going to bear the government. That is the rule, the authority, the power, the dominion on his shoulders. Isaiah 14. Verse 24. The Lord of hosts has sworn, these are God's words, as I have planned, so it shall be, or so shall it be, and as I have purposed, so shall it stand. Verse 27. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? And we can compare that to what we read in Psalm 146 of the human magistrates. When His breath departs, He returns to the earth. On that very day, His plans perish. Everything He planned to do stops. The tree falls and there it lies. It's done. Only to rot. But of the Lord of hosts, He says, I have purposed, I will do it. This is a direct fruit or outworking of being the supreme Lord and King of all the earth. There is no one to annul or cancel His plans or purposes. His plans are His purposes, and His purposes are His practices. As He decrees, so He does. There's no deliberation in God. He simply does. And there's no one who gets in the way. Now this can only be if this God is at the top with no peers, no competitors whatsoever. It only works if He's supreme. Isaiah 44. Verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Keep that in mind. We're going to see it again later. Isaiah 45, verse 5. I am the Lord. There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Verse 7. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Now, just notice that language. First, last, no other, no other God. I form, I create, I make, I create, I am the Lord. Supreme Lord and King of all the earth. That's what he's saying. Turn to Jeremiah. Chapter 32. Jeremiah 32, 27. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? What are human rulers made of? Flesh. Who rules over all flesh? The Lord, the God of 
all flesh. And then he asks, is anything too hard for me? He could have just as well asked, is anyone higher than me? Is anyone over me? Will anyone of flesh contradict me? I'm the God of all flesh. Then turn to Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations 3, 37 and 38. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? In other words, everything that happens comes from the mouth of the Most High, the Supreme Lord and King over all the earth. Who could have such power over every event in history, good or bad, except He who is alone, the Supreme Lord and King of all the world? Turn to Amos chapter 8. Hosea, Joel, Amos after Daniel. Amos chapter 8 and verse 9, we see His power over the created elements which govern the world. Amos 8, 9. On that day declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. He rules over the heavenly hosts which govern our schedule. And then turn to the book of Zephaniah chapter 2. Zephaniah chapter 2. What, what would be the ultimate sign that the Lord God is the supreme ruler and king or supreme Lord and king over all the world? What would be the ultimate sign? Well, it would be for all other so-called lords and kings and so-called gods to render homage to Him as supreme. Look at Zephaniah 2.11. The Lord will be awesome against them, for He will famish all the gods of the earth. And to Him shall bow down, each in its place, all the lands of the nations. I believe it's clear from the Old Testament that God is the supreme Lord and King of all the world. Now what happens when we get to the New Testament? We come to the New Testament. That virgin-born son prophesied by Isaiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, is attributed all of the same titles as God, Lord, Ruler, Creator, King. I'll just read these. Romans 9.5, we learn that from the race of the Jews, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And then Christ Himself says in the last chapter of the Bible, referencing back to that text we read in Isaiah, Revelation twenty two thirteen, I am the Alpha and the Omega the first 
and the last, the beginning and the end. Now think about that. We read all of this language from the Old Testament. God is the supreme Lord and King over all of the earth. And when we come to the New Testament, we see, well, that supreme Lord and King, that supreme God is the man Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ, God over all, through whom are all things and through whom we exist, the blessed and only sovereign the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Alpha, the Omega, the first, the last, the beginning and the end, according to the eternal gospel, suffered and bled and died, enduring the wrath of God in the place of sinners. Who oversaw the crucifixion of Jesus? The church stated it in their prayer in Acts chapter 4. They were praying. They said, in this city... There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people, peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand had, your plan had predestined to take place. Herod and Pontius Pilate, civil magistrates. In Acts chapter 2, Peter says, Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Who were the lawless men? They were the civil magistrates. And yet their actions were according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. They did whatever God had predestined for them to do. What do we learn from that? That God is the supreme Lord and King over all the world, to such an extent of sovereign overlording power that He even governs the wicked hearts of wicked men to accomplish His eternal plan of redemption. Before we can even begin to consider what the civil magistrate is, where the idea came from, what their job is, what their relationship is to us and ours to them, we have to understand this point. They are not supreme. Not supreme. They were not first. They will not be last. They do not have authority from themselves. They do not have a position that is self-derived. And they do not deserve unquestioned allegiance. God alone is first and last and self-existent. God and God alone is the supreme Lord and King of all of the world. Here's four things we learn. No human magistrate is above or outside of God's authority. Because He's supreme. They're not supreme. He is supreme. Ergo, they are not above or outside of His authority. Number two, ultimate allegiance belongs only to the ultimate ruler. Now, if you can square that with swearing an oath of allegiance to the flag, then that's on you. But ultimate allegiance only belongs to the ultimate ruler. Thirdly, God has the authority to dispose and dictate everything under Him. Because He made it. He's supreme. He gets to do what He wants. And four, anyone who sets out to dispose or dictate the affairs of creation apart from or in contradiction to God has put themselves in the place of God and are to be resisted because they're not God. Only God has that place. 
Now, we generally think in terms of three spheres of sovereignty amongst men. The family, the church, and the magistrate or the state. Now, we could add the individual into that if we wanted to. But over and above all three of those, the family, the church, and the state, God stands supreme. Which means God is the supreme Lord and King of your family. God is the supreme Lord and King of the church. God is the supreme Lord and King of the state. He rules over it. No man invented or contrived in his own mind the concept of the family. No man invented or contrived in his own mind the concept of the church. No man invented or contrived in his own mind the concept of the state. Not even the Apostle Paul in Romans 13. It was God. No human being has the ultimate rule over the family. No human being has the ultimate rule over the church. No human being has the ultimate rule over the state. Those positions are reserved for God alone. Now we can work from the greater to the lesser. That means you do not have ultimate authority in your home over your family. You nor I have ultimate authority over the church or this church. And you nor I or any man has ultimate authority in or over the state, the civil sphere. Which means, we're, we're, we're working our way down logically, which means when it comes to matters of family governance and order, no one in your house gets to dictate how it works. God has that place in this book right here. This is where we get it. God has that place. When it comes to matters of church governance and order, what should the church do? How should it operate? When we get together, what are we going to do next Lord's Day? I'm going to be out of town next week. What are you all going to do? Is somebody going to call me and say, hey, what do you think we should do for church? No, that's not my place. Nobody. When it comes to matters of, matters of church governance and order, no one on earth gets to dictate how it works. That's God's place and He's told us in this book, His Word. And when it comes to matters of civil governance and order, no elected official, no dictator, or no governing body gets to dictate how it works. That's God's position. He has given it to us in this book. He gets to do that. Now, do men always submit to that reality? No, they don't. Do men always obey? No, they don't. We know that for a fact. Does that make it right? For them to disobey, no. A lot of the talk that we've heard over the past year is, well, God sets up kings. And basically what people imply by that is, well, whatever they do is acceptable and we obey it because, well, God sets up kings. And that's, that's not true. That doesn't make it right that they simply disobey God. They're wrong for that. And we could ask, is there any recourse for the governed when governors throw off God's authority and act and rule wickedly. Yes, there is. There is recourse. We do not offer blind allegiance and obedience to whatever the state says. That's simply not biblical. Will you and I give an account for the actions of rebellious rulers? No, 
That's on them. They're going to answer for that. Will you and I give an account for our obedience to the supreme Lord and King of all the earth? Yes. We will stand and give an account for the way that we have submitted to Him as well as the way that we have submitted to those over us. Now, all of that should cause us to think very deeply and seriously about the role of the magistrate and our relationship to him. What is he supposed to be doing? And what am I supposed to be doing? And when he does that, well, what do I do? Do I just follow along blindly or do I have recourse? It, it, we ought to think about that. Now, now, all of that truth from the entire Bible must help us to then interpret Romans 13, 1-4. And I'll read that and then we'll be done. Romans 13, 1-4. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Now, if we only read that part, we might begin to think, whoa, we'll backtrack a tad because it sounds like what you just read is different than some of the things you said. But notice what he says. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct. Is he prescribing or describing? He's prescribing. He's not describing the Roman Empire of the first century. He's prescribing. He's telling them what they ought to be doing. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Let's pray and we'll stand and sing together.